0: once again to the perimeter church podcast it's been said that before you hand a gun to someone be sure you know which way it's going to be pointed the religious leaders handed jesus their gun the law and their intended target an adulterer but jesus had a different target in mind Matt Ballard, lead pastor at South Point Community Church in Nolansville, Tennessee, continues the series What's on Your Heart with this message entitled How God Handles Our Shame, which covers John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11.
1: Thank you for joining us today. My privilege now to introduce to you Matt Ballard. Uh, we were just discussing there quietly a minute ago how uh, many people, he said, it seem to be a lot of new people, and I talked about how many people join per year. He's been gone now five years, which is hard to believe. And uh, so many of you wouldn't know, uh, uh, know Matt and his family, but Matt uh, married to Chrissy and the three girls, uh, teenagers and one almost a teenager, uh, two teenagers and one almost a teenager, I guess. So, uh, life is going by quickly, huh? But we're glad to have you back, Matt. It's been a treat having him here at the first service. You're going to enjoy him today. Uh, this is part of our Young Leaders series. If you're new with us today, we do this every year, bring in some young leaders. And said this year, uh, let's emphasize some of those leaders that uh, are related very closely to this church. And Matt was actually on our teaching team, has been a member of our staff from 2005 to 2010. At that time, he led our ministry to our singles and also to our young families. And uh, we're just honored to have him back. He is now the pastor of a church that he planted in the Nashville area. He'll say a little bit about that church uh, as you hear him uh, introduce his message. But uh, God's been using him there in a great way. We miss you here much. But to come up, let me pray for you, and then uh, we'll uh, set you loose to teach God's Word, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing Matt back to us. What a, a great reunion. Uh, what a good fellowship you've given us together through these years, and I pray now, bless him and anoint him as he preaches to us this day. May you be honored through him. Bless us as he does so. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. I bless you,
2: Amen. Thank you, Randy, and it's good to be back. Uh, I tell you, it's almost like you blink your eye. Well, thank you. Y'all started clapping since I was gone last. My goodness, I like that. I want some amens in here too, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. But as Randy said, this is really home for me in a lot of ways. Uh, It doesn't feel like I'm visiting, it feels like I'm coming home. Uh, This church has left such an indelible mark on my life. Randy, so many of the others, Bob Cargo, Randy Schlichting, Bob Carter, uh, Brian White, so many of the other staff that have poured into me and loved me. In many ways, South Point Community Church, where I'm the pastor, is a plant of perimeter. Uh, You guys have helped fund us. You have shaped me. A little bit about our church. It's four years old. We we planted it uh, in July of 2010. So uh, we're coming up on four years. We started with about 20 people who were dumb enough to come to my church. It's uh, since grown. We have about 500 people or so there now. We do two services. And we call ourselves a perfect place for imperfect people. And we exist to make Jesus, that man, the unavoidable issue. And so that's who we are and what we're all about. I, we, I, I live in sort of the um, uh, south part of Nashville and uh, it's fastest growing community in, in, in Tennessee and one of the fastest growing in the United States. It's a weird place. It's like if you took a neighborhood out of Atlanta, L.A. and New York and dropped them in a cow pasture in Tennessee. That's kind of what it's like. Man, I, loved, I love it there. Glad to be back though. Well, the series we're in is called, What Has God Been Laying on Your Heart? And I'm grateful that God has me on a journey of learning and relearning what I would suggest is the main storyline of the gospel, the soundtrack, the big idea that echoes through every page with its heart-melting, shame-expelling, soul-enlarging message the big idea that can be summarized by one statement Jesus said that we find in John 8. It says this, neither then do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Do you really want to change? Do you want the imprisoned parts of your heart to be emancipated from the chains of fear and self-loathing and shame? Do you want to breathe in the fresh air of freedom? Then let that statement settle in let the weight of that glory settle upon your heart that it rips away everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles because that statement is the ultimate motivation for change in the Christian life. Not fear, not guilt, not willpower, but love, forgiveness, and grace. This morning we're going to look at the context of that statement found in john chapter 8 verses 2 through 11 now if you have your bible you'll see a little star there that says that the oldest manuscripts do not contain this part of john and the issue there is they're not totally sure who wrote it did john write it or did luke write it that's up for debate what's not up for debate however is that the story actually happened so with that in mind let's read this the very words of god early in the morning he came again to the temple all the people came to him and he sat down and taught them the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in their midst they said to him teacher this woman has been caught in the act of adultery now in the law Moses commands us to stone such a woman what do you say they said this to test him that they may have some charge to bring against him Jesus bent down And wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, Let him without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Rebecca Thompson fell from the Fremont Canyon Bridge twice. The first fall broke her heart. The second fall broke her neck. She was 18 years old when she and her younger sister Amy were abducted by a pair of subhuman vermin from a store outside of Casper, Wyoming. The, they drove the girls 40 miles to the Fremont Canyon Bridge, a steel beam structure that soared 120 feet over the North Platte River. They brutally beat and had their way with Rebecca, and somehow in the middle of the trauma, she convinced them not to do the same to her little sister Amy. Amy. Both girls were thrown over the bridge into the narrow gorge, and Amy didn't survive. Rebecca hit a ledge and was ricocheted out into deeper water, and with a severely fractured hip, she struggled to the shore where she wedged herself between two rocks and hid, and it was there that she waited for the dawn. But though the sun came up that next morning and she was rescued, the dawn never did come for Rebecca. The doctors treated her wounds, the courts imprisoned her attackers, but the dark night of pain and shame lingered. She was never able to climb out of that canyon. So 19 years later, she went back to the bridge, and there with her boyfriend and their little two-year-old daughter, she sat on the edge of that bridge and wept. And through her sobs, she retold the whole ugly story. Her boyfriend had heard it before. It was the story that defined her. He didn't want their little daughter to to hear mama cry, so he carried the little girl back to the car, and that's when he heard the splash. And that's when Rebecca Thompson died her second death because the sun never did dawn on Rebecca's dark night. Why? Why? obviously it was trauma i mean but, but but what is it that so eclipsed the light from her world what was it fear maybe she testified against the men she courageously looked them right in the eye in the courtroom and pointed them out and one of the murderers taunted her and as he smirked and sort of slid his finger across her his throat on the day of her death they'd both been up for parole maybe The fear of a second encounter was just too much. Maybe it was fear. Was it anger? Anger at her rapist? Anger at the parole board? Anger at herself for a thousand falls and a thousand nightmares that followed? Anger at God because she survived and her little sister didn't. Anger at that haunted canyon that grew ever deeper and a night that grew ever darker and a dawn that never came maybe it was anger was it shame shame everybody she knew and thousands she didn't had heard the humiliating details of the tragedy with this stigma over her story was just tattooed a little deeper into her soul with the ink of every headline She'd been raped, violated, deeply shamed, and try as she could to outrun the memory and cover it over with a bubbling personality she never could. Shame. That's where my money is. That's what I'm guessing. Canyons of shame run really deep. Your shame... My shame. Their steep walls plunge us down into the dark, inescapable gorges of self-contempt, accusing memories of our failures, exposure in front of others, the haunting recollection of being publicly humiliated and then rejected. We've all experienced these on some level, and they clip the wings of our heart and they relegate us to a world that's mired in a dark, inner place of deep self-condemnation we laugh at our most embarrassing moments heck we use them as fodder for icebreaking. but nobody ever laughs at their most shameful moments most of us don't even talk about them the question our passage brings up to us is how does jesus Deal with people whose lives are full of shame. The woman in our passage was caught in the act of adultery. I mean, those words alone are enough to make you blush. Caught. Doors kicked open, covers yanked back in the act, in the arms, in the moment, in the embrace. In an instant, she's yanked from private passion to public spectacle. Heads poke out windows as the posse of self-righteous moral belief shove her down the street. And all of that commotion causes quite a scene. People begin to yell at her. Look at that whore. She's always been a tramp. Neighbors judge. People talk and most of all, everyone sees. You know, if you're just looking at that picture, there are actually a couple of things that just don't add up. Number one, where's the man? I mean, the law of Moses confronts both parties in adultery and says that they're both to be stoned, but there's only a woman there. Was the man a faster runner? (laughs) No, it's not that. They didn't need the man. They had what they wanted. She was nothing but bait in a bigger trap. They didn't care about the woman. They don't care about the truth, and they don't really care about the law of Moses. What they really wanted was to embarrass Jesus, because verse 6 says it right there. This they said to test him. That they may have some charge against him. You see, they wanted to get Jesus in one of these catch-22s between upholding the Bible's standards and forgiving an obviously guilty sinner. I mean, think about it. If he lets her go... They prove he's soft on sin and not serious about the law. If he condemns her, he brings down the scorn of the Roman authorities for only they had the right to uh, condemn somebody to capital punishment. It's a perfect setup. They'd done their homework. They thought this one through. The woman, she's just an object, a pawn, bait in the trap. If she's... (laughs) All they really want is to hurt Jesus. The second thing you notice is this. Why did they hate Jesus so much? To wrap your mind around the vitriol hatred, you've got to understand who these guys were. Now, the New Testament writers, it's very clear, they portray the Pharisees as the bad guys. And when you and I see the Pharisees and what they do and how they act and their attitude, our knee-jerk response is to say what self-righteous idiots man i'm glad i'm not like them that's the problem that very thought i'm not like them that is phariseeism The very mindset of, I'm not as bad as, or I would never do that, or we're not those kind of people, that mindset that we're all very familiar with is exactly what the Pharisees represented. I mean, one of the roles they play in the Bible is they serve as a mirror to our own self-image. And so every day, you and I are faced with a choice between defending self and desiring Christ. And you can't have both. But man, defending self feels so good. You come at me, bro. I'm going to come back at you. I want to be better than you fill in the blank. You know, C.S. Lewis says that the heart of our sin isn't that we want to be rich or we want to be pretty or we want to be smart. It's that we want to be richer, er, smart-er. And man, nothing feels more satisfying than having a group of those people to vilify and to aim all our frustrations at life towards. And here's the thing about the Pharisees. They weren't like the Taliban. See, in in Israel, you had the zealots. They were like the ultra-right-wing Taliban on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you had the Sadducees. They were the sort of hyper-progressives But the Pharisees, these were the paragons of good citizenship. They were thoughtful, balanced conservatives of their day who stood and courageously and bravely fought the tide of cultural decay and evil. They fit right in around John's Creek, Georgia. (laughs) And yet the Bible portrays them as the bad guys. Why? They were great guys. You know why the Bible portrays them as the bad guys? Because they were good. They were too good for Jesus. Here's the thing. Jesus doesn't draw lines where we draw lines. We draw lines between the bad people and the good people. The problem is, depending on who you are, that's sort of a very relative thing. I mean, if you're a Republican, those are the bad people over there, the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, those are the bad people over there, the Republicans. Who's right? And that's why Jesus never drew the line between the bad people and the good people. He drew the line between the proud people and the humble people. Those who were too proud to admit they needed the Savior and those who were humble enough to say help You see, the Pharisees, in their mind, they were the examples to follow. They were more well-read. They were more thoughtful. They were more well-balanced than the average person. And they didn't need help. They were the ones who gave other people help. And if they needed a Savior, it was a military Savior to go kill the Romans. They did not need a spiritual Savior. Because if they needed a spiritual Savior, that would put them on the same level of the people that they judged Who do you judge? We've all we're all good at it. Who are the inappropriate people that you find it so easy to draw a circle around and say, irredeemable? Who are those people to you? You know what we often miss? Did you know that what God wants from us isn't primarily ethics? Because ethics can easily lead to pride. What God wants from us more than anything is an enjoyment of him and a surrender to him and a love for him. You know why? Because one strategy for running away from God is hedonism. That's what the woman was doing. But the other strategy from running away from God is trying to be so good that I don't Need him. That's the Pharisees. Oh, they may want God as a helper. Everybody wants God as a helper. But they don't want God to give them an eternal bailout as a savior. And here's the thing that's why I just do right religiosity that subtly makes you feel superior gives you the self-assurance that I'm just slightly more well-balanced than everybody else. You know, that's really nothing more than well-behaved hostility towards God. You have to understand that according to the Bible, every one of us is spring-loaded to be biased against Jesus. And some of us run from God by being really good, and other of us run from God by being really naughty. But the root of both is everybody is spring-loaded to run away. And here's The thing if you don't understand what I just said in a very personal way, such a way as you say, you know what? That just nailed me to the wall because both those people live in my heart. If you don't experience that statement like that, you're not getting the gospel of grace. The penny's not dropped in you yet. Because here's how we become followers of Jesus. The truth of who Jesus is and reality of what Jesus did enters our hearts and it humbles us. We see how clearly short we fall and we realize that, that our, our quest is hopeless and all the spiritual duct tape in the world isn't gonna put our souls back together again. And then we look to God and with the most honest confession, we cry, help, I can't do it. And that admission frees us up to be more honest with ourselves than we've ever been in our entire lives. The great Southern writer Flannery O'Connor, who grew up outside of Milledgeville, Georgia, said this, to know oneself is above all to know what one lacks. The first product of self-knowledge is humility. You see, God's confrontational love wins this confession from us. It says, I'm going to stop pointing the finger at other people. I'm going to stop blaming all the problems in the world on other people using my own hair-splitting legalism. Because, I mean, my gosh, if God were to judge the whole world based on the, on the basis of my heart, the world would not have a chance. My only hope is that God supplied someone to take the punishment I deserve and God supplied someone to earn the acceptability I desire and my only hope is Jesus Christ being a substitute for sinners and the more I experience his love and mercy for me, the less I feel like I have to scrutinize everybody else. Spiritual pride keeps score. It takes scrupulous notes with other people's faults and their failures, and it never forgets. And again, it talks about people's sins with the subtle hint that there's probably no hope for them. Who are you keeping score with? You know what I learned when I got married? I stink at math, but my gosh, I can keep some score in my marriage. (laughs) And so can she. And it literally took the cross falling down in the middle of our marriage to save us. Made both those scorebooks close. And say it's under grace. Because here's the thing. Someone who knows the love of Jesus, you know that the greatest sin in the world resides in your heart. And so you can hold out hope for anybody because you know you have found hope for you. You. Because every time, if you understand grace, every time you look in the mirror, you see a miracle that if I can be loved by God and I am a trophy of grace, I can't draw a circle around anybody and say they're irredeemable because that's just a lie. Unless I'm willing to draw the same circle around myself. And Jesus wants this church, his church, to be a showcase of what happens when people get freed up from shame. When people don't have to walk around like this, it's almost as if Christ just lift up your head, stop looking at you and your record, look at me and mine. God wants this to be a place of safety, of hopeful acceptance that looks at everybody and says, you know what, there's more power in the cross than there is sin in you. God wants this church to be a compelling social alternative to the Atlanta that is. Because you know what it's like out there, where you live, where you work, where you play, what you watch on TV and sometimes what you bring in your home. Living in human culture is like swimming in a mostly unspoken but absolutely true. It's like swimming in an ocean of criticism and contempt and shaming. Uh, we live in the seventh, most wealthiest county in the United States right near Brentwood, Tennessee. Now, I don't live in Brentwood. I live in Brent Hood because I can't quite afford to live in Brentwood. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you something. I remember the first time I went to a Williamson County PTO meeting. and I looked at my wife after it was over and I said, whoever says only God can judge me has obviously never been to a Williamson County PTO meeting. <laughs> That's pretty easy to see. I mean, the government shut down because of it. Our homes get torn, torn apart because of it. We're scared to risk or dance or fail because of it. And so when Republicans scoff at Democrats or Democrats scoff at Republicans or artistic types scoff at engineers or vice versa, what you're really watching is just guilty people doing their best to change the subject and get to focus on somebody else's sin. Guilt and shame are the social dynamic we we live in. And so everybody's sort of got some group that they're saying, yeah, God, let's stone them. But the Bible says in John 3, 17, God did not send his son to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that's what we see in Jesus. Just the most amazing part of this passage to me is that the grace we see is not just about Jesus and the woman. It's about Jesus, the woman, and the Pharisees. Because Jesus doesn't say to the woman, I do not condemn you. You see what he said? He said, Neither do I condemn you. Because the Pharisees didn't condemn her either. They ran away. He changed the whole culture. Because what he was doing is he is deconstructing and then the whole environment of judgment in that culture and he's replacing it with something new and beautiful and redemptive. He doesn't shame us. He restores our dignity. And he's calling calling us to reflect the same thing to our families and to our world. Now, there there are three quick things I want you to see about Jesus that really do speak to his divinity. The fact that he is the God-man. Number one, Jesus interpreted the Word of God with authority. In verse 6, it says that Jesus stoops down and begins to write with his finger on the ground. What was he doing there? Now, there's been so much speculation about this. I mean, was, it, was he writing down a list of their sins because the older men left and then the younger men? Was he writing down a passage of Scripture? Nobody knows. Anything, uh, anything somebody says is mere speculation and conjecture, and I think it misses the point. I think the point is he's writing with his finger because in the Old Testament, the law of God was written with the finger of God. We see that in Exodus 32, 16. And here Jesus is writing with his finger as the law is being debated because he is the author of that law. And therefore, he knew how to apply it. And that's why as they're arguing of the law, he says... Okay, let him without sin cast the first stone. Let me say this. When he says that, he's not going soft on the law about adultery. Not at all. You know what he's doing? It's just the opposite. He's actually applying the law far more rigorously than the Pharisees were. The Pharisees were applying it to her. He turns around and applies it to them too because here's the thing. The law said, if you even knew of anybody who was contemplating adultery, it was your responsibility to go to that person and do whatever you could to keep them from doing that and they knew they'd not done it. He's convicting them of their failure. You know why I would do that? Because I want to condemn them. That's what I would do. But that's not what he's doing. He's just doing the opposite. In fact, what he's doing is he's offering them the same fresh start in grace that he's about to offer her. It's almost as if you're saying, come on, guys. I obviously know your hearts. And you know your hearts, too. You don't have any room to be throwing rocks. Why don't you come over here and join this woman in humility before me? So I can forgive you just like I'm forgiving her. You know, the gospel of grace, you begin to see the power of the gospel when you start putting not just others, but yourself under its power. When you begin putting yourself, not just others, under the law of God, when you begin to say, as King David said so long ago, search me, O Lord, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Show me offensive ways in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Some of our marriages, are we're messes. We're messes because we're trying to play the Holy Spirit to our spouses. And we're bringing the judgment of God, the law of God, and we're applying it to them and we're not applying it to us. And so if you want God's power in your marriage, humble yourself under God's mighty hand, as 1 Peter says, that he might exalt you in due time. Honestly make eye contact with God and with open hands of vulnerability surrender to him and saying, God, how do you want me to change? I'm the only person in the world. I have the power to change. You can have whatever I surrender. And then you open your heart to what his word says. Because God doesn't lead us through good feelings. He leads us through His Word. See, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He says, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. The Pharisees chose the path of pride and denial, but not the woman. They were worried about image management, but she just didn't run, she just listened. In disbelief at her change of fortune, her heart begins to open up. You know, sometimes rock bottom is a lot closer to the top than you would ever believe. Which path are you choosing? Are you still evading him by holding on to judgment? By denying your need? By spending more time on image management than repentance? Repentance? Are you bowing your knees before him? Let me just speak to the fathers for a second. You know what, dads? Show your children how to repent. Don't just tell them the law. Show them how it applies to you. Show them how you go to Jesus with your sin and show them how Jesus changes you. Dads, be the chief repenters in your home. Let children learn what the well worn path to the cross looks like because they follow your footsteps there. Second thing we learn Jesus had the authority to forgive sins. He didn't condone what she did. In fact, he called what she did sin. From now on, go and sin no more. Now, that's incredibly countercultural to our hypersensitive, politically correct ears. He says, Neither do I condemn you. Listen, that's intensely moral language. And in our culture, we are encouraged. No, we are demanded not to use moral language. We don't say words like sin and condemn because we don't sin in our culture. Think about the last politician that had a real screw-up. Did they come and say, I've sinned? No. Every time they say the same things. I deeply regret my mistakes and bad choices condemn. In our culture, we're not supposed to condemn anything. We're supposed to be unquestioningly inclusive, not condemning. We're supposed to be accepting and even applauding. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't forgive mistakes and bad choices. Jesus forgives sins. The word forgive can only be used with a moral offense. Never be too proud to confess your sins. And I don't mean sins in general, because we're all generally sinful. I mean specifics. And you don't have to be scared about it. Because the gospel gives us courage not to have to explain our sins away. Not just to say, well, I'm such a wounded person, therefore it's okay. Or that's just the way I am, therefore deal with it. The world wants us to lie to ourselves and avoid really looking at sin, but Jesus forgives sins, not excuses. And so the gospel gives us the security of God's love and forgiveness. And because of that, do you realize that the church can be the least defensive place on earth? Can you imagine that? If nobody in here was defending themselves because they didn't have to because they believed they had a defender. And let's be honest. If you want to come up and tell me about my sin, you know what? You don't know the half of it. And you probably wouldn't want to. But I'm loved by the great king, and so are you. Last thing we learn, and I'll conclude on this. Jesus commands her to go live a new life. And Lamont says it this way, I do not at all understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but it does not leave us where it found us. Amen. He says, go and sin no more. Now he's not saying, go be perfect from now on and never screw up again. He's, He's just saying, listen, things have got to change. Things have got to change because I want you to enjoy me forever. I love us being close, and I want us to stay close. It's it's like he looks right in the eye, and he says, Look, you've experienced the inner hell of a dark conscience, of all that shame and guilt, and you know how it can drive you away from me. So today, I don't ever want you to forget what you've seen. And I don't ever want you to forget what you've heard. You know, the purpose of obedience is not to set us apart from other people as good examples. The purpose of obedience is to keep us tender in our hearts towards Jesus to the point where we want his presence and we experience his nearness. And the problem with moral compromise is you stop wanting Jesus and sometimes you can't go back. Are you living under pride and shame? Or are you living under brokenness and grace? You know a surefire way to tell? It's real simple. How do you treat other people? How do you respond to their sin, especially when it splashes this ick up on you? Do you hold them hostage to your judgment? Do you talk about them behind their back? Do you try to shame them into submission? Are you keeping those scrupulous notes that you demand payment for? As a general rule, we have about as much grace to extend to others as we are experiencing from Christ ourselves. That's how much grace you have to give others. We tend to treat others like we think God treats us. And so does Jesus shame you? Or does he cover your sins? Does he give you a passive-aggressive cold shoulder when you come into his presence? Or does he give you a warm embrace? I mean, what would it be like in his embrace to have all all the shame of your failures and all the shame of your screw-ups, to have them melt away in the grip of his grace? What would it be like if your dignity was restored, if your chin was put back up? If the chains of your self-hatred weren't there anymore? Neither do I condemn you if you've ever wondered how God reacts when you really, really fail, frame those words and hang them on the wall, neither do I condemn you. Read them. Drink from them. Stand under them and let them wash over your soul. Or better yet, invite Jesus with you to the dark canyon of your shame. Invite him back to the Fremont Bridge of your world. Let him stand beside you and recount to him the darkest night of your soul and then listen. Listen. Because he's speaking. He's speaking to you. Neither do I condemn you. There's no condemnation for you. And watch. Watch carefully because he's writing. He's leaving you a message, not in the dust but on a cross, and not with his hands but with his blood. And he's reminding you that if you are in him, the deepest reality in your story is not your sins against Christ and others, but his faithfulness towards you. And the past you may have made for yourself cannot disqualify you for the future God has in store for you. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, the ruts of a lifetime of self-hatred, a lifetime of shame, a lifetime of accusation and beration and condemnation, cut deep grooves in our thinking, cut deep grooves in our self-image, the ruts and gorges that we fall into and have such a hard time crawling back out of. And we thank you that you are the Lord of the gorge and that we can wait patiently for the Lord for you lift us up out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire and you set our feet upon a rock. Father, for those of us who can, we say come. For those of us who can't we pray that you would come anyway and we remember the promise that you say i will not leave you as orphans but i will come for you and we ask this for your greater glory and for our richer joy and for the salvation of the nations as we continue to worship you in song amen
0: you've been listening to the perimeter church podcast perimeter church is located at the corner of highway 141 and old alabama road in johns creek georgia